The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy anniversary. I mean, not a good one. It's actually a terrible one. We're going to talk about Black Lives Matter. Let's look back. We're going to talk about the World Economic Forum with James Lindsay and Carol Roth. We're going to have a bunch of fun on I'm Right. Happy anniversary. It is, well, I think it was yesterday, the two-year anniversary of the death of St. George Floyd, the patron saint of Minneapolis, and may he rest in peace, of course. And as I thought about that, and we'll get into all the disgusting political things that happened on that anniversary, it did take me back. And one of the things that bothers me about society today, to sound like an old man, but one of the things that bothers me about society today is this. We forget. We're constantly getting new news, new scandals, new things all day long, every day. Pick up your phone, there's a new story every... So we forget. I haven't forgotten. And I don't think you should forget, because the chaos and insanity surrounding the death of St. George Floyd is something we should never forget. We should never forget the lies, the violence, the stupidity, the hatred, the weakness. We should never forget. We should never let it go. So let's do a little rewind. Let's just do a little rewind. What happened? Well, George Floyd, career criminal, got high as monkey balls, or wait, that's not right, giraffe balls, that's it, got high as giraffe balls on fentanyl, and got busted, tried to resist arrest, gets taken down. Now, this is, this is the lead up into it, right? And then we all woke up one morning, what do we see? What do we see? We picked up our phones and we saw a terrible looking video. 
a terrible looking video and then it went right from the internet to all your cable news channels and what was on that video you got george floyd laying there shirt off sweaty calling for his mom there's a cop looks like the cop's got his knee on the back of his neck he won't they won't get off the guy he's why is he there for so long it's what's going on and it looked really bad right looked very bad and immediately outrage began and I want you to understand something, because they do this to this day. In fact, they're doing it right now as we speak with this Uvalde speaking. They do this on purpose. They wait until you're shocked, sad, mad, whatever the case may be, and they look at you when you're in that state, and they pounce. Because remember, the communist, it works to his advantage because he's such an anti-human, because he doesn't care about humanity, certainly not George Floyd, not cops, not anything, really. He's able to dispassionately look at every single situation and analyze how it can help him. And the communists saw this terrible looking internet video and they immediately thought to themselves, wow, that's awesome. I mean, you have to understand that's what they were saying. All of them, all the scumbags. They didn't get sad, they didn't get mad. They looked at that guy dead and said, man, <laughs> this is really good. And they pounced. And then they proceeded, well, to destroy the country. They did more to rip apart the United States of America than anything I've seen in probably my entire life. And of course, you know, Barack Obama, yesterday on this two-year anniversary, in the wake of this Uvalde, horrific Uvalde school shooting, had to somehow make it about George Floyd and remember what I said yesterday, and I really mean this, I don't blame anybody for the divisions of this country as much as I blame Barack Obama. He was always that guy, always picking at all the scabs, pulling at every thread that holds this society together. And it's not as if he stopped that. He said, quote, in the aftermath of his murder, talking about George Floyd, a new generation of activists rose up to channel their anguish into organized action launching a movement to raise awareness of systemic racism and the need for criminal justice and police reform. You see, while you stood by last year and you watched the horrific carnage taking place, well, two years ago, Barack Obama stood back and he watched everything, the looting, the burning, the death, and he said, this is exactly what we need. This is the ultimate in anti-Americanism. And all the way, systemic racism. I hear that word so much. He says it again right here, systemic racism. You can read it again for yourself. Systemic racism. That's an interesting word. Certainly has been systemic racism against black people in the past. What do we have today in America? Let me see. Well, um, the new bill that Joe Biden and the Democrats passed. You know what that bill did? All that COVID money they were handing out to businesses? The bill did it in the law. It wasn't like a side thing. This was part of the law that passed the United States Congress and was signed into law by the President of the United States of America. You know what that bill did? It took all these business owners lining up for PPE money, PPP money and going, uh, white people, hey, whitey, to the back of the line with you. No, no money for you, whitey. Oh, oh, you want a vaccine? Oh, you want, you want monoclonal antibodies? <sighs> Says here you're white. Sorry, Whitey, those are for black people. We certainly do have some systemic racism going on in this country, don't we? Anyway, moving on, let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Let's talk about George Floyd. 
I mean, I don't support police brutality, if you consider that being what that was at all, but let's stop with the insanity. We get this all the time where they will take something and they know it's got your attention and they will elevate things that shouldn't ever be elevated. It's the George Floyd is a lifelong criminal and a drug dealer. And they've, they've got a statue of the guy in New York City. They've, he's got a statue. Remember in Washington, D.C.? They actually plastered Black Lives Matter across the street. They just wrote it across the street. Black Lives Matter? Um, that's a criminal organization made up of street communists. Remember, the Black Lives Matter people who got so popular two years ago in the wake of George Floyd's death, they're on camera stating they're Marxists. And all these businesses took your shareholder money and they started chucking gobs of it at Black Lives Matter. And we, we now know, what were they spending it on? Well, themselves weren't helping black people, weren't fighting systemic racism. They were building mansions, paying off relatives, doing all the things violent street communists have always done. That's what they do. And that's what they're celebrating when they celebrate the anniversary of St. George Floyd's death. The Democratic Party, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, all of them, all of them chose to pounce on this thing. It was a sight to behold. Two summers ago, in the middle of the pandemic, we saw a protest across the nation, the likes of which you hadn't seen since the 1960s. They unified people of every race and generation athletes and sports leagues boycotted and postponed games. Companies and workers proclaimed Black Lives Matter. Students staged solitary walkouts. From Europe to the Middle East to Asia to Australia, people saw their own fight for justice and equality, what we were trying to do. Boy, it sure was uniting, wasn't it? Peaceful, very inspirational except 570 of them were actually violent riots and 25 Americans are dead. Dead. They died in those. And look, you want to talk about the ultimate sky is green proof? Those riots two years ago, never forget this moment as long as I live, did more to divide this country racially than anything I've ever seen before. I'll tell you, I think I've told you this before, we live in the suburbs of Texas. We're in the general Houston area. And so it's an extremely diverse racially and culturally area. It just is. And we don't discuss race in my house, or at least we never had up to that point in time. It was never discussed. My kids go to school with a bunch of kids of every different color. We're in the neighborhood, a bunch of people. We're always at neighborhood parties together. All their school friends are different colors. And it just is something that has never come up in our house. It's just not something we view as important, the, the, you know, the color of your skin. It's just nothing we talked about. And I'll never forget, it's crushing. In the middle of all this insanity after St. George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and white people suck and this and that, I'll never forget my youngest coming up to me and saying, he never mentioned race to me, he came up to me and said, Dad, do black people hate us? I'll never forget it. Of course, I sat down and told him, no, son, we've got a bunch of scumbags out there taking you back. You know, I told him the who's who and the what's what, but he has eyes, he can see. These people are ripping the country apart. And do you remember the media? Do you remember? Because I think people have forgotten. Do you remember how the media covered those violent, vile riots that were burning down American cities? In case you forgot, here's what they were saying then. I want to be clear in how I characterize this. This is a, mostly a protest. Uh, it, is not, uh, it is not, generally speaking, unruly. 
That ain't a riot, what we're seeing right now in Minneapolis. Any reasonable person would say we shouldn't be destroying other people's property, but these are not reasonable times. But thank goodness for the looters, man. And please, show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. You're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations that have been burning in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Do not get it twisted and think that, oh, this is some something that has not never happened before and then this is so terrible and where are we and these savages and all of that. This is how this country was started. Well, that's how the media covered it. So what are the results? How did it work out? I mean, it is the two-year anniversary, right? Surely at this point in time, we can step back and analyze how do we handle things? Well, here's how we handle things. We've talked to you before about how crime has been skyrocketing. Um, Milwaukee's up 100%. 100%. Las Vegas, 45. Atlanta, 43. New Orleans, 35. Houston, 28. Baltimore, 26. Portland, 25. Minneapolis, 14. On and on and on. 133 police officers have been shot in 2022, and 20 of them were killed by gunfire. That's a 34% increase since 2020. And let me check my watch. <coughs> it says May. In May, we've got a 34% increase in dead cops. So what do we have? What do we have in the wake of all this St. George Floyd stuff? We have people being murdered in these cities, mostly black people, I might point out, black people being slaughtered. We have cops being slaughtered, cities being vacated, turned into crime-ridden hellholes, black lives matter worth millions of dollars, yet under investigation for the blatant fraud they committed. And that's not the worst part. That's not, that's not the worst part. The worst part is this. All the people who pushed this, all the people who caused this, they all just moved right along. As people die, as some nine-year-old gets shot tonight in the Bronx, nobody who caused that situation will step back and take accountability. Nobody will even ask them about it. They'll all just breeze right along. Oh, and of course, they'll take the time to once again blame the cops and Republicans. The House passed a strong bill that failed in the Senate where our Republican colleagues opposed any meaningful reform. Well, I actually wish he was right. I wish every single Republican stepped up in the wake of St. George Floyd's death in the hysteria, and I wish every single Republican stepped up and said, uh, no, we're not passing a federal bill. That's ridiculous. If there's an individual police department that needs to be reformed, it should be reformed. We're not passing a federal bill, and we're certainly not going to help demonize the cops. But that's not true. The truth is, everyone wants me to forget. I've not forgotten that uh, notorious scumbag Cory Booker was putting together a police reform bill in the wake of George Floyd's death. GOP sweetheart Tim Scott decided to join him in that and hop right on the cops are the enemy narrative. So how did all that work out? Cops are the enemy, right? Cops are the problem in the urban black community. There's no question. It's definitely the cops. Well, people in the urban black community have been dying in droves for two years. Good job, fellas. All that may have made you uncomfortable, but I'm right. We have to talk about this Texas shooting next. And we're actually not going to talk very much about the shooter. There are some really shocking allegations out there about what the cops did and didn't do. And we're going to talk to Sheriff David Clark about that in just a moment. Now, before we do that, let's talk about health. More specifically, let's talk about your health insurance. 
We talk about all the corporations. We just got done talking about the corporations who jump in and jump on any communist cause they can and throw money at it. Look up your health insurance company and see what they had to say. Then go look up OneShare Health. OneShare Health is a faith-based insurance company. They give 5% of every monthly payment to our veterans struggling with PTSD. They actually care. They actually give back. And their coverage options are amazing. Their pricing options are amazing. Whatever you want. 24-7 telehealth, vision, dental, they have it all. They got a deal, too. If you go to my.onesharehealth.com slash Kelly, promo code Jesse Kelly, you get 75 bucks off your enrollment fee. How about that? My.onesharehealth.com slash Kelly, promo code Jesse Kelly. We'll be back. Each morning, the President of the United States receives a highly classified briefing on the most important issues facing the country. It's called the President's Daily Brief, or PDB. It's delivered by America's spies and analysts. Well, now you can hear your very own PDB in the form of a podcast hosted by me, Brian Dean Wright, a former CIA operations officer. Each morning at 6 a.m. Eastern, I'll bring you 15 to 20 minutes of the most important issues facing the country giving you the critical intelligence and analysis you need to start your morning. I promise the Floyd family, among others, George's name is not just going to be a hashtag. Your daddy's name is going to be known for a long time. But as a nation, we're going to ensure his legacy, the legacy of so many others remembered today. It's not about their death but what we do in their memory that matters. Joining me now, Sheriff David Clark, former sheriff of Milwaukee County, also author of the book Cop Under Fire. Sheriff George Floyd, I, I've never seen anything like this in my whole daggone life. Whatever you think about the incident, the elevation of this human being into some cult-like saint. Sheriff, we had a, we had a funeral service down here in Houston and didn't even die here. You know, it's bizarre, it really is. It's cultural rot and it's cultural dysfunction within the black community and it is assisted by Democrats and particularly uh, what Joe Biden just said. Look, the sooner we put George Floyd in our rearview mirror, the better off America is going to be. Here's another thing, we should not be memorializing anything about George Floyd. If you knew about his criminal past, you wouldn't do this. And it is time for black people, my people, to stop exalting this guy as if he belongs in a seat alongside of people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Crispus Attucks, the first person to die, black man, by the way, in the American Revolution, people like James Meredith, the first black man admitted to the University of then segregated Mississippi. You look at Emmett Till, you look at Rosa Parks, I could go on and on and on all day. Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, those are the people that we need to honor and admire. To sit up there and hold this guy, Floyd, who at one time held a loaded firearm to the stomach of a pregnant woman, threatening to shoot her in a home invasion robbery. And at the time that preceded his death, he was involved in drug use and passing uh, counterfeit $20 bills, I believe. This is not the guy you wanna model yourself after. We're better than this as a community. Come on, black people, step up your game. We're better than this. Sheriff, switching gears here into something that honestly, it's uncomfortable, but it's, it's in the news and it's something I think it has to be addressed and you're the one that's probably the best one to address it. 
in the wake of this Uvalde shooting, obviously this horrific shooting in Texas, all these school kids are dead. We now have all these articles and now video to back up the articles today that make it look like the cops, uh, whatever law enforcement agencies were there, were holding parents back and standing outside with long guns in their hands while kids were dying inside. Sheriff, I wasn't there. I haven't been a cop since I was briefly one in the Marines. So you, look, you were the sheriff. Please tell me what I'm seeing is not what I'm seeing because I, I don't know how this is defensible. I'm not going to tell you your eyes are lying, but first of all, I want to preface my statement with this as I always do. I don't want to get out ahead of the investigation. I don't have all of the facts. I have bits and pieces like you and everybody else, and I'll wait until the final picture emerges at the end. But we can make some early observations. And from what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing, highly problematic. Look, I understand these situations are chaotic. It's pure pandemonium. But one of the problems that I have with the way law enforcement officers train is that we train in these very sterile environments where everything is in order, you have time on your side, and then you get into the, the battlefield in a situation like this, where it's, you know, all heck breaks loose. You don't have time to huddle. You don't have time to gather information. It's go time. And when you hear those shots, you have to breach that property and neutralize whoever may be shooting on the inside. That is what is supposed to go on. But what's supposed to go on and what actually does in real life, sometimes it doesn't match up. Okay, Sheriff, and again, I, I guess we don't have to make it about this individual incident, but is there some protocol I don't know about or some policy I don't know about that would cause law enforcement to stand outside while shooting's going on inside? I'm genuinely asking, is there, is there some policy I'm not aware of? Because all the cops I know tell me exactly what you just said. When there's a shooting inside, you grab your weapon and you run towards the action. That's, that's what all of them have told me. Is there something else new out there I'm not aware of? No, that's why I said it's go time. Look, you know, we'll have to find out from these officers why they did what they did. I always, you know, hold off until we hear from the officers. Maybe they had information that we don't have. And I'm not, I don't make excuses for this. I said, I'm going to repeat it. This was highly problematic if what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing actually happened. No, there's no written protocol. There's no policy. A lot of this in law enforcement is instinctive, for heaven's sakes, based on what you're presented with at that time. And that's why you can't draw up a policy or a procedure because you don't know what information or what's going on is going to be going on at that time that the officers arrive. So I'll just caution everybody, you know, I understand, highly problematic, but let's hold off. Let's find out why they did what they did. And then you know what? The chief of that agency and those officers should be held accountable. They're going to have to be held accountable. Sheriff Joe Biden got up yesterday. Big surprise. Here's a little video of who he blamed for it all. Second Amendment is not absolute. When it was passed, you couldn't own a you couldn't own a cannon. You couldn't own certain kinds of weapons. It's just always been limitations. But guess what? These actions we've taken before they saved lives. They can do it again. Uh, you could own a cannon, Sheriff. What is this idiot talking about? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I had to hold myself back from laughing. Joe Biden, he never, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Every time he opens his mouth in an instance like this, something stupid comes out of it. 
Uh, it was based on, the Second Amendment was based on the weapons available at the time. There's no prohibition against owning a cannon, for heaven's sakes. I've never seen that documented in the, the, the Bill of Rights. And for Joe Biden to say it's not absolute, I don't know, I'd like to take... Uh, and I'd like to make an issue of that because the, the language says, and I know this has been muddied by lawyers and courts of law who overthink these things, but what part of shall not be infringed does Joe Biden not understand? Well, I think there's a lot Joe Biden doesn't understand. Sheriff David Clark, thank you so much, Sheriff. I appreciate you. Always my pleasure. All right. We've been talking a lot about the climate change death cult. Well, we have... New stuff on that coming up here in just a second. Before we talk about that, let's talk about the stock market. Uh, I, look, I get the same notifications you get. Hey, congratulations, your 401k is now worth zero. <laughs> I get the panic phone calls and everything else. What should, I, what should I do? What should I do? Well, do the opposite of what the public's doing. That's what all the smart money guys tell me. Do the opposite of what the public's doing. Maybe right now you're thinking, oh, I've got to get out. I've got to pull out. That's not what all the rich people do. Look, here's something you can do. Don't have to. Here's something you can do. Go to 2022stockmarketmessage.com. What you're going to see there, who you're going to see there is Mark Chaikin. He's one of these money guys. He's the guy who predicted the 2020 crash. And he knows what's happening right now, what's coming. And he thinks there's a tremendous opportunity. Might be a good guy to listen to, huh? 2022stockmarketmessage.com. We'll be back. Should consumers expect record prices into the summer? Oh, I think so. I think uh, prices are not going to come down uh, in the next few months. I mean, summer driving season, you only see an increase in demand, and that's when prices usually go up even further. So there is all this demand pressure on the price of fuel. So that you, um, our Energy Information Administration has said that the price of gasoline is likely to stay above $4 a gallon uh, through this year. Ouch. Joining me now to talk about that and other things is Alex, Alex Epstein, sorry, author of Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. Alex, I don't exactly have to explain to you or really anybody watching that gas prices are high. We're all, <laughs> we're all taking that on the chin right now. Why are they high? Is it just summertime? <laughs> It's just very simple and everyone who caused it wants to evade the cause. It's just supply and demand. And we artificially restricted the supply of fossil fuels through decades of hostility to fossil fueled investment, fossil fuel production and fossil fuel transportation. And now we're reaping what we sow. Alex, what's wild? You mentioned everyone's just kind of glossing over it. There's something people are glossing over. It's that Democrats have campaigned repeatedly on destroying the oil industry. They're quite open about it. And now that the oil industry is being destroyed, they're acting as if they didn't have anything to do with it. This is something, I mean, back to Obama, he talked about increasing energy prices, not like it's a bad thing. How are they getting away with this? Or are they? I mean, they're trying to. I think I think it's a little hard for them to do so because you have Joe Biden who ran on, I guarantee you we will end fossil fuel, which is just a total threat if I get elected, I am going to make your life miserable and I'm going to threaten your future. And investment in new production is all about your confidence and the profitability of the future. So, you know, when he gets elected, what are companies supposed to think? But now he doesn't like the 
consequences in terms of public opinion. So now he's pretending he didn't do anything adverse, but he's still saying, hey, if we get more oil, it's only a temporary tiny thing. We're going to get rid of it soon. Well, why the hell is any self-respecting company going to invest in more drilling when the president is still telling us that he's trying to eliminate them? Alex, a lot of people don't realize the big oil companies themselves are not necessarily our friends when it comes to this. What's wrong with these companies? Well, you know, the companies are often unusually good in terms of they advocate more drilling and more freedom to drill, even though that harms them in terms of the prices go down. People don't think about when you oppose oil in general, what happens is you generally crowd the smaller people off the market, you drive up prices, and oil is a commodity that costs the same to produce whatever it costs to us for the most part, which is different than gasoline, by the way, but just producing oil for the oil producers. So they make a ton of money when these Democrat or anti fossil fuel policies pass, the ones who remain. And often, occasionally, at least some of the richer, more powerful, more connected ones like that situation. But in my experience, most of the companies are actually pretty good. They advocate freedom and they believe that'll lead to stability over time, which they want more than just a quick profit and then a disaster. Alex, we played this video yesterday. We're going to play it again. I'm sure you've seen it. There's some nutter at the World Economic Forum talking about tracking our individual carbon footprint. Yes. We're developing through technology an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. Alex, that's about the creepiest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's, it's particularly creepy because he's so enthused about it. He's enthused about having this obvious tool of totalitarian control. That, that's what I find so upsetting. I mean, one, one quick comment about the World Economic Forum that I've been making. I have an article coming uh, out about this today or tomorrow, which people can see if they just follow me on Twitter, at Alex Epstein, is the World Economic Forum is a major cause of the global energy crisis. They're the ones who told us, one of the leaders who told us, we got to get rid of fossil fuels and replace it with unreliable solar and wind which has totally failed. So they need to be apologizing to us, not advising us. Alex, thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Keep your eyes on these climate death cultists. I'm telling you, they're, they're not going to stop. They're feeling extra powerful right now too, especially in the wake of all the COVID stuff. They saw all these restrictions, all this government power now, and they want a piece of that action. Keep your eyes on them, all right. Speaking of climate, let's talk about the climate of your house. How are your allergies? You know you got viruses and mold floating around your house, right? It's human nature. Get an Eden Pure thunderstorm, or I should say get three of them. They call it a thunderstorm because it does in your home the same thing nature does after a thunderstorm. Constantly cleans the air. You can smell it. You can taste it. Just plug it in. Come back to the room about an hour. I keep one where I sleep, one where my sons sleep, and one in the general living area. I highly recommend you do the same. Put it wherever you have smells. It works. It's amazing. Go to EdenPureDeals.com and use the code JESSE. That gets you $200 off. EdenPureDeals.com, code JESSE. We'll be back. Global health equity has made progress. We saw once again with COVID, we're not there. So we're 
pleased to be working with Pfizer and we're talking to the entire pharmaceutical industry about uh, these kinds of initiatives and how we can uh, broaden them as part of the whole ESG effort. Global health equity. Man, what a term. We got a great panel to discuss that and many other things. Joining me now, my friend James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses and author of a book you really need to read, Race Marxism, if you want to understand what's going on out there right now. And of course, the great Carol Roth, recovering investment baker, author of the book, The War on Small Business, another one that should be on your shelf. James, I know this is kind of your baby, ESG, global health equity. James, what exactly does Bill Gates mean when he says global health equity? It sounds so nice. It does sound so nice, doesn't it? Because equity means socialism and health socialism sounds like a great program. Uh, equity literally means redistributing shares so that citizens are made equal. And we're talking about globally doing that with regard to health. Um, so we can expect to see some 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 big medical Lysenkoism, which is a big word. Uh, Trofim Lysenko was a Soviet uh, biologist and agriculturalist who starved millions with his crackpot theories of how we're going to do agriculture in a Soviet way. And we're going to see health equity as kind of the brand name for a push to ruin medicine globally to redistribute outcomes and shares, uh, apparently through uh, mRNA vaccines and so on when Bill Gates gets talking about it. So it, it, it's a catastrophe in the making of historic proportions is more or less what that is. Um, and of course, it's wrapped up in ESG, the brand of the hour. Carol, why does an equity work? I mean, it's, it does sound very nice, right? I mean, I want the idiot to have the same success that the smart person does, but why doesn't it work? Uh, because we're all different, Jesse. Uh, you wouldn't want everybody to just be like you because then the world couldn't handle that much awesomeness, right? We need to have <laughs> variety in the kind of awesome that we have. And that's the, that's the reality. There's a great uh, short story by Kurt Vonnegut called Harrison Bergeron, which basically talks about this. And it had the ballerinas, um, you know, having to like have binders on them and the athletes, you know, having to have weights to weight them down so they could bring down their greatness to the level of everyone else. And that's what James is talking about in socialism. It's not lifting people up like capitalism, giving them more opportunities. It's taking the people who have the opportunity to thrive and to innovate and to make everybody's lives better and bringing them down to sort of the uh, the worst person in the room. So while I like equity in terms of ownership of things, financial equity opportunities, uh, certainly don't like equity-driven outcomes. James, I was at a neighborhood party the other night, a bunch of voting Republican neighbors, about 10 of us sitting around there having a couple cocktails, and I brought up ESG. These are all moderately successful people, fairly successful people, and not one person sitting around that table even knew what it was. I told them all to pull out their phones, look up their bank, and look up ESG, and their jaws all hit the floor. Why is something that's so broad and so powerful not known? You know, that's a really good question that I don't know the answer to. I have gone around not just with moderately successful Republicans in business. I've gone around to politicians in, I don't know, maybe a dozen states who 
I talked to them about ESG and what an emergency ESG is and how it's tied into the pushes for diversity, equity, inclusion, and therefore equity, which equalizes downward because socialism is a redistribution scheme, not a production scheme. So it just brings things down. Uh, but they, they all tell me, you know, I've maybe heard that one time in my life before you talked about it for half an hour just now. What is it? I don't understand how I, I have no idea how they've been able to slide this um, central pillar of kind of investment finance under the radar of so many people so effectively over the past decade or so, but they have done so. And people need to wake up very quickly to the fact that ESG, as I like to put it, is the, the ring that they pull through the, ring, uh, through the nose of the bull on Wall Street. You want to control a bull, you put a ring through its nose. ESG is what they slid through the, through the nostrils. Speaking of Wall Street, Morgan Stanley's CEO, James Gorman. Of course, the World Economic Forum is going on right now. Here's a little video clip of James Gorman playing dumb. I want you to watch this. I have a question for Carol. In my, I think, 12 trips to uh, Davos, I couldn't go this year because it actually is today, uh, I believe, or yesterday. Um, uh, listen, the World Economic Forum brings together a variety of opinions from leaders and thought-provoking individuals around the world. Uh, there's many platforms expressed there and many points of view, certainly uh, some that I don't share, but um, uh, we participate in it because uh, we want to be an agent for constructive dialogue around the globe. Carol, uh, two-part question here. One, that's an intelligent human being. Is he really unaware of exactly what the agenda is at the World Economic Forum? I have a very difficult time believing that. That's one. And two, if not, why would the Morgan Stanley CEO ever sign on to something as destructive as ESG when his job is to make shareholders money? So I actually, not knowing the gentleman, but whether it's him or other CEOs, a lot of them don't have any idea what the World Economic Forum actually stands for or what ESG means, even though they have to push it through their organization. And that's because there is an entire class of racketeers, people uh, in the consulting business, in the legal business, uh, in accounting businesses that have said, this is something important because they have found they can extract fees from it, right? They can say, we're experts in the new thing and this is going to be important to you. And if you don't do this, you're not going to get the accolades and the CEOs go, man, I don't want this headache. It's all risk mitigation to them. So fine, that, you know, that sounds great. You know, go ahead and, and HR or whatever, go and run with this. And so I do think a lot of people go to the World Economic Forum because they see a lot of other people there. I know I went as a blogger in, you know, like 2010 or 2011 in New York City when, there, when somebody said, oh, there's this place with a lot of big fancy people and ideas and you can listen to the sessions and, you know, tweet about it and, and write blogs. And, you know, at the surface level, if you don't investigate, it sounds interesting. It's only when you do the deep dive into it and you start to see what they're doing and how they're really coming up with these centrally planned ideas and pushing them through mechanisms like ESG that it all goes from sounding you know, really nice and being this elite cocktail party to being really darn scary. That sucks because I like cocktail parties. James, we just saw that bald-headed freak Klaus Schwab on the screen as Carol was talking there. Everyone knows his Bond movie villain sound of his voice by now, at least everyone who watches my show or pays attention to either of you. 
What I want to know is how does this guy possess whatever he possesses to pull in so many powerful people from around the world? I mean, you look at that list of attendees, it's a who's who of billionaires and politicians and senators and parliament, and he's got them all there. What's this guy got dirt on everyone or something? He probably does have dirt on everyone, but I mean, let's be a little bit more cautious. Uh, he started this off, people don't realize, this is 50 years old. He started the World Economic Forum in 1971. He's been pushing for his stakeholder capitalism model for the fourth industrial revolution for 50 years. And he started it not alone as some weirdo European that might have been extraordinarily well-connected in various industries in Europe, but also as the protege of Henry Kissinger, who is no small name to be throwing around. So he started with massive connections that he leveraged by creating his who's who club, his cocktail party, if you will, that he started bringing a lot of people to in order to shape the vision of the future. And he's been at it for 50 years where it's slowly been gaining more and more and more clout by the usual mechanisms, which is, oh, we're doing this cool thing and you have to pay a lot of money to get into it. It must be really elite and important. We're shaping the future. You come, you come, you come. And you start bringing people together, business leaders, politicians, major foundation leaders, uh, influential people like Henry Kissinger and so on that have lots of connections. And you can just start bringing people into uh, kind of a cabal where they want to rub elbows with those people, whether they give a crap what the World Economic Forum stands for or not. And so it's the classic kind of elite uh, scam in order to get people together to build out an organization and he has a monomaniacal vision for what to do with it. Carol, I have a general economic question for you because I think it's appropriate to wrap this up. I, I have been saying that we are already in a recession. They just don't know it quite yet, that we're already in a recession. I do genuinely fear we are heading towards a Great Depression, something really severe, not just because of where we are, but because of the direction of all these people at places like the World Economic Forum trying to fly the plane into the side of a mountain. I, I do believe that's where we're going. Can we stop it? Is there anything we can do to stop it? Because when you look at every branch of the government, of the U.S. government, has something about environmental justice in it now. Every single branch, people don't know it. Every financial institution signing on to ESG. Every part of a very corrupt system heading the wrong direction. How do we avoid massive pain? Yeah, I think I've used this phrase uh, on your show before, Jesse, but you know, the one thing we have going for us is that we are the skinniest kid at fat camp. We do have a lot of you know, wonderful companies that are highly productive and you know, great technologies and infrastructure. So we are very well positioned vis-a-vis um, -vis everyone else in the, the entire world. However, these, there are all of these destructive forces. So we need to stand up and we need to use our voices. You know, one of the things that companies don't like is to lose money. And so writing their boards, writing their management team, doing open letters, um, you know, getting politicians involved at the board level and saying you're breaching your fiduciary duty by taking on ESG, you know, that's a great way to stop it. And we've already started to see some pushback. We've seen folks like Elon Musk, who you would think, you know, an electric vehicle provider would be at the top of the ESG list. He was kicked out of the S&P 500 ESG index because, you know, they didn't like him. <laughs> Frankly, that's the reason. But, you know, other big fossil fuel companies are still in there. So I think that when companies um, see that they're starting to lose money and that customers don't like it, that's a way to stop it. And they don't have the luxury right now.
right now the things are getting tough they're going to have to really make decisions so if there was any time for us to use our voices and our dollars now is that opportunity for us to stop it and we do need to do that now before it becomes codified into law yeah, maybe we have the leverage. I like that. Carol Roth, James Lindsay, the two smartest people I know. Thank you both. I appreciate you. Thanks, Jesse. All right. Bill Gates, we played him for you at the beginning of that one, and I've been loudly proclaiming this guy to be one of the world's monsters. Mike Slater, our boy Mike Slater, he's got a special dropping about Bill Gates this Friday. Go sign up to be a First TV supporter so you can watch that. And one other bit of good news, a little bit of housekeeping here. I know you enjoy watching me, because you're watching me right now. <laughs> well, you know I have a radio show every night, too. 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern, the Jesse Kelly Show. It's really huge and awesome. I don't want to brag or anything like that. But apparently people want to watch me do the show and not just listen to me do the show. You can do that starting June 1st. Go to thefirsttv.com slash jesse. It's like 100 bucks for a year, so not even that much money. Thefirsttv.com slash jesse, and you can watch me do the radio show. Are they worried about my facial expressions and things I say and things I do that normally radio people can't see? Oh, sure they are. <laughs> We're doing it anyway. Thefirsttv.com slash jesse. We'll be back. I love my dog, and my dog loves me, but I have this thing. I feel like I'm picking up on something, and I feel like my dog loves me more when I'm in the kitchen making some eggs or grabbing some chips or something like that. I really feel like he's a real slave to his stomach, and hey, I guess he's not alone. morning, the President of the United States receives a highly classified briefing on the most important issues facing the country. It's called the President's Daily Brief, or PDB. It's delivered by America's spies and analysts. Well, now you can hear your very own PDB in the form of a podcast hosted by me, Brian Dean Wright, a former CIA operations officer. Each morning at 6 a.m. Eastern, I'll bring you 15 to 20 minutes of the most important issues facing the country giving you the critical intelligence and analysis you need to start your morning. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.